This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, with pandemic relief cash from the government came fraudsters and identity thieves trying to steal it. I'll talk to the Secret Service agent whose team recovered billions of dollars. Then, North Korea continues launching provocative weapons demonstrations. Could they be preparing for a nuclear test explosion? And congressional staffers draft policies, interact with constituents, and advance legislative agendas. So what happens when the workforce doesn't reflect the diversity of the country? Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. When pandemic shutdowns started wreaking havoc on the economy, the White House and Congress came to the aid with trillions of dollars worth of aid to individuals and small businesses. But that kind of money invites criminals. It was Secret Service agent Roy Dotson who led the team that investigated those criminals. Roy, welcome to the program. Good morning. You're a Secret Service agent. Most people know that that's, uh, you guys protect the president. What are you doing involved in pandemic relief fraud? Well, the Secret Service also has an integrated mission that we investigate cyber crimes, financial crimes, basically. So we do a lot of investigations, whether that's uh, business email compromises, ransomware, uh, bank fraud, those types of crimes. And really the history of the Secret Service was as part of the Treasury Department, that it was originally for counterfeiting. It was a financial crimes bureau, essentially. Yes, yes. It was founded on those principles. At that time, they believed that maybe up to a third or a half of the uh, currency in circulation was counterfeit, and that's how we were established. T tell me about this problem. How were you initially alerted that there was a problem with this pandemic uh, relief fraud? Well, the Secret Service, we have a lot of partnerships, and those are private and public, and those include financial institutions. Um, after the CARES Act was enacted in March of 2020, shortly thereafter, uh, we started getting calls from our financial institutions believing that some of their clients were receiving funds that they believed possibly were fraudulent. And those happened to be unemployment insurance payments and SBA loans. So how were criminals trying to get at that money? Um, it wasn't a real sophisticated uh, fraud. Um, individuals could just uh, submit an online application. So individuals, as soon as those funds became available, not only did um, some transnational and domestic organized crime groups, but also individuals were able just to submit those applications online. So all you had to do was say, I need the money and the government would send you a check? Well, there was some, obviously some information that you had to provide in those applications. And most, you know, in the, in the case of fraud, in fraud cases, that was fictitious or you know maybe they used somebody else's identification so yes in some regard you just had to fill in an online application um, and then eventually you were supposed to submit some type of paperwork um, that would validate what you had uh, inputted into the applications okay so you realize there's a problem what do you do what's your first step so we uh and the Secret Service and our cyber fraud task forces, which is made up of uh, state and local law enforcement that work with us every day on all types of financial crimes, um, we came together. We came up with an investigative plan 
we uh, put together basically like a COVID-19 fraud team um, that consists of agents and detectives and analysts. Um, and we started to uh, gather intelligence um, from, again, from our partners and also working with SBA OIG and the Department of Labor, Office of Inspector General. Um, and we started working all together to pull and make leads, criminal leads, and also to follow where the funds had gone. I was going to ask you about working with other agencies because you had to not just work with state and local, but across the federal government. How did that go? You know, actually, it's in, in 20 years with the service, it, it's one of the best um, collaborations I've ever seen as far as across the federal law enforcement and when we're talking about, again, SBA OIG, DOL OIG. Um, the Pandemic Response Accountability Commission, it's been incredible. Everybody's come together, we understand the mission, we understand what happened in some regard, and we all have one common goal, and that's to not only to try to recover what we can for either the federal government or the state, if they were a victim in the unemployment, or, but it's also to bring those to justice that have decided to target. Well, speaking system. of recovery, what were you able to recover? Yeah, to date, uh, the Secret Service has recovered about $1.26 billion uh, that we've seized. And then we've had another about $2.3 billion that was recovered as we, uh, you know, we worked with the financial institutions, the third-party payment systems to directly return that to the, the victims. And is it the Secret Service that takes the lead on pandemic fraud, uh, pandemic relief fraud? No, many of our partners um, like the FBI, the IRS, HSI, um, annually we do benefit fraud cases. So this is not really new. Obviously the size and scope is way beyond anything that we've uh, encountered, but I wouldn't say we're the lead. We just were able to, we kind of got out in front early and then we, our partners joined us quickly. Is this kind of fraud still happening today? Well, it's starting to slow down just because the, the outflow of benefit payments is, is drying up. So that part is slowing up. As far as the investigation, it is, it's full force. The Secret Service has over approximately about 1,000 open criminal matters at this time. And I know our partners have you know, somewhere in those neighborhoods. So um, as far as the follow-up investigation, it is, uh, you know, it's ongoing. And I would hope it's, it's slowing down because people are not doing it as much. Yeah, I believe that the message is getting out um, that, you know, federal law enforcement, even state and local law enforcement are actively investigating these cases and that people will be held responsible if they committed fraud. Can you tell me just briefly about some of the other financial cases you've worked with in your career? Yeah, so I've worked, again, you know, business email compromises, ransomwares, with, which deal with like romance scams and things like that that we all hear about a lot now. Uh, I've done a lot of Ponzi schemes and then a lot of cases that involved um, a lot of victims, you know, especially the, the most vulnerable in our communities. All right, Roy, thank you so much for your service and for coming in and being with us on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Coming next on Government Matters, the latest North Korean missile tests and the prospects for curtailing their nuclear program. We'll be right back. North Korea recently test-fired eight short-range ballistic missiles from several locations toward the sea. 
U.S. and South Korean officials say these tests might culminate in a nuclear test explosion. Soo Kim is a policy analyst at the RAND Corporation and a former CIA analyst. Sue, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. There were eight new missile tests from North Korea recently. What's the significance of those? So the number is striking. And I think what's striking about this incident is that it's not just eight North Korean missile tests, but it was followed immediately by eight United States, South Korean missile tests in return. So both Koreas are trying to, I wouldn't say ramp up tensions, but they're both trying to maintain their position and to communicate with the other Korea that they're ready for any kind of escalation of tensions and provocations that might take place. So from the South Korean angle, it's to decrease and to protect the security of the region. Whereas in the North Korean case, it's about escalating the, um, the tensions between the two Koreas and to convey a message to the United States and South Korea that Kim is going to go nuclear and to maintain his position vis-a-vis -vis the ROK and the United States. Well, before we talk about going nuclear, I want to ask you about the timing of the test, because it was around President Biden's Asia trip and also after a joint U.S.-South Korea um, naval drill. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. So for Kim to have kept silent um, amid COVID-19, amid Russia-Ukraine tensions, uh, amid a, a, a new South Korean presidency and a very successful U.S.-South Korea summit, uh, that would have been, I think, a symbol or an indication of resignation on Kim's part. So he had to say something or do something about this. So the timing was to keep all of those atmospherics in mind and to let the United States and South Korea just remember that North Korea still exists and that even though negotiations are not taking place, uh, Kim Jong-un is still maintaining his position and he wants to be acknowledged as a nuclear state by the United States. South Korea and the international community. So do you think North Korea will test a nuclear weapon? Is that where this is heading? So the signs are indicating that they're getting ready to, to go nuclear or to, to, to test a nuclear weapon. What's interesting is that we've been sort of waiting for this to happen and North Korea has not actually, uh, you know, gone by our predictions or a time. But I would say that because we've seen the signs and the movements for a long time now, it's actually just a matter of when, not if. And when, you know, we had mentioned that there was a response of missiles fired from South Korea. Is that typical that there would be a response from the South? So if we recall the, the responses or the non-responses, I would say, from the previous South Korean administration, uh, what happened under the U administration just this, uh, you know, a couple days ago is, is not expected. I think this was probably the strongest South Korean response we've seen in a while. But I would also caution that this is also still just um, a, a um, you know, this is all also hypothetical. It's a scenario. So we don't really know how the allies are going to respond um, if and when the tensions actually do start to escalate to a point where it's more tangible. And the reason why the United States and South Korea have taken this response um, by firing um, the volley of eight missiles is so that um, it, it's not to, 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 to create an atmosphere of war in the region, but to discourage North Korea from taking more drastic measures and more reckless moves that are going to uh, upset the stability and the balance in the region. 
You know, I wonder, um, the Wall Street Journal reported that um, the U.S. has been uncharacteristically open about intelligence, about when North Korea is going to be um, launching uh, these test missiles. What do you think of that? Is, is that having the intended effect? I mean, what is the intended effect? So it's uncharacteristic, I think, in that North Korea has also been uncharacteristically invested um, more so in its nuclear weapons and, and ballistic missile systems. So to, again, to reduce tensions and to send a signal to the North Koreans that one, we're keeping an eye on Kim Jong-un's weapons moves, and two, that any sort of you know drastic escalatory measures taken by Pyongyang is going to be watched carefully and that there will be consequences. Uh, I, I, I'm guessing that the um, the intelligence community have judged that this would be a way that would be much more effective than just allowing North Korea to continue without um, any sort of acknowledgement from, from Washington and from Seoul that we know that this is taking place. But what's also interesting is that this is not actually discouraging Kim Jong-un from pressing forward with this plan. So I think the the announcement and, and, and the sharing of the information to the public and also to North Korea is helpful, but this also needs to be backed with um, measures, um, you know, a la the, the, the two uh, United States and South Korea conducting missile tests the past couple of days. Um, those sorts of things that are going to be um, the actions that are followed by words and signals, I think, would be much more substantial. So, you know, Kim Jong-un has made comments that he's willing to use nuclear weapons proactively when threatened yes. or provoked. Is that a, a shift in doctrine or is it more of the same rhetoric? You know, I would just say that it's the same thing. Um, when North Korea had started to ramp up and build up its nuclear capabilities, there was no question that um, that denuclearization was out of the picture for the United States and South Korea. So for North Korea, um, an impoverished country that does not really care about its citizens, to invest that much money and that much time into the weapons capabilities, you have to think about why they're holding on to it and why they're so insistent upon building, building, and building in self-defensive measures when in fact, the United States and South Korea, um, are, we don't harbor hostile intent towards North Korea. So again, there, I think it's just a shift in rhetoric as opposed to a, a shift in position. All right, Sue, thanks so much for being on the program. Thank you. Up next on Government Matters, why are black staffers leaving Capitol Hill and why it matters? Stay with us. While the membership of Congress is getting more diverse, the senior staff making the most important policy decisions is still mostly white and male. LaShonda Brenson is a senior researcher at the Joint Center for Political and Economic Studies and has been studying this issue. LaShonda, welcome to the program. Uh, hi, Mimi. Thanks for having me. So take us through some of the numbers um, as far as uh, black staffers on percentages total among Capitol Hill staff and then senior staff. Sure. So um, we um, do research on uh, top staff. So when we talk about top staff in our research, we're um, specifically speaking to chief staff, legislative directors, and communications director. 
So in our recent report on the Senate side, we um, found that people of color represent about 40% of the U.S. population, but only 11% of uh, senior staff of color on the Senate side. And among black staff, that percentage is only about 3% on the Senate side, although African-Americans make up about 13% of the U.S. population. And we find similar numbers on the House side, uh, especially if we look at um, white Democrats and Republican offices, although um, diverse members of Congress employ a high number of diverse staff in their offices, at least on the House side. So senior staff, uh, you, you talked about chief of staff, legislative directors, communication directors. What are those mm -hmm. positions responsible for? Yeah, a lot of people are not necessarily familiar with these unelected congressional top staffers, but they play an essential role on the Hill. Um, specifically, these um, staff members provide policy expertise. Um, they act as surrogates for members of Congress. They can only be at one place at a time. And so they really help to supervise their congressional office, uh, offices, hire and fire uh, uh, employees in their offices. And they really um, have um, a lot of um, power and influence because, the, like I said, the member can only be at one place at one time. And so um, they do a great uh, deal as it relates to assisting members uh, with policy decisions, but also um, helping um, um, constituents in uh, member offices, for example, in district offices, access um, federal benefits when they have trouble. A lot of times they go to their district offices for assistance and their staff assist them with those um, uh, getting access to those services. So, LaShonda, Democrats have a higher percentage of black voters than Republicans. Mm -hmm. Is that reflected in higher percentages of black staffers for Democratic lawmakers? Yeah, so um, that's a, a good point. So a lot of people think, oh, okay, you know, basically this must be a Republican problem, but this is a problem for the institution overall. So a Pew uh, study found that 37% of registered voters uh, self-identified as uh, Democratic voters who are non-white. But if we look at Democratic offices, that percentage for um, diverse top staff is about 20%. Uh, um, in, um, but that is not necessarily reflected. You know, there's almost a 20% uh, percentage point difference between that. So you can see that there's a big gap. However, if we look at Republican offices, people of color make up about 14% of registered Republican voters, but they represent about 4% of uh, top staff. And so that percentage, at least on the Republican side, is actually closer, relatively speaking. And so that's why we emphasize in our research that this is a bipartisan issue that must be addressed institutionally overall. So I want to go back to the insurrection of January 6th. Um, mm -hmm. You know, some people carried symbols of white supremacy and racism um, when the insurrection stormed the Capitol. What mm -hmm. lasting impact has that had on Black Hill staffers? Yeah, I mean, especially given that the, the public hearings on the Hill is going to start this Thursday, um, this is a big issue for staffers still. Um, we um, work with a lot of groups and we formed a coalition called Capital Strong to provide resources and um, just the opportunity to speak to staffers. And one of the things that we did in working with staffers, we um, helped them put together a letter um, from the Congressional Black Associates and the um, Senate Black Legislative Staff Caucus in a letter that was featured in the New York Times, basically um, talking about the difficulties that they face as staffers and how hard it has been since January 6th. And so this is still a problem that they're facing, um, just given um, the, you know, the cases and the hearings are about to occur on the Hill this week. What about the gender divide? You know, the experience mm -hmm. of women of color on the Hill and any impact uh, as a result of the vice president being a woman of color? 
Mm -hmm. So if we look at the data across chambers, women of color make up about less than 6% of chief of staff, legislative director, communications director. However, if we look at the census data, we see that uh, women of color make up about 20% of population. So you can see that there's a big discrepancy in between those numbers. So what are your recommendations then to both encourage more hiring of Black Hill staffers and to better support them once they're there? Yeah, that's a great question, Mimi. So the, the issue and the reason why this has persisted for a long time is that, you know, congressional staffers uh, receive low pay and, you know, this area is very um, high in terms of cost of living. And there's somewhat of an insular culture on the Hill that makes it hard for uh, diverse aides to actually build a career on the Hill and to not only get their first job, but to actually sustain themselves on the Hill. And so there's a number of solutions that can be employed. Uh, for example, improving the pipeline so that um, when the uh, staffer gets on the Hill that they feel supported um, and they can build a career, increasing the pay for all congressional staffers, um, you know, they shouldn't have to have second and third jobs to uh, make ends meet. Um, and so they should um, receive a livable wage and that way they can feel comfortable staying and building a career on Capitol Hill longer. And there needs to be more investment into in diverse um, staffers in terms of um, building their career. So once they are on the Hill, how can they be supported to where they can get a lot of training and opportunities for growth when it comes to um, you know, being promoted over time into All right. senior roles. LaShonda, we're out of time. We'll leave it there. Thank you so much for being on the program. Thanks for having me, Mimi. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. And tell us what you thought about today's program. You can reach us on Twitter at GovMattersTV. Follow us to get the latest updates, reminders, and links to our latest interviews. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years, have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is. It is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite 
connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's going to be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.